0: would require or promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in weather today in Washington, D.C., it is 47 degrees under fair skies. For WPFW News in Washington, I'm Sue Goodwin.
1: great labor songs, but one of my favorite ones, and it may not be as well known, is Commonwealth of Toil. Right over the main entrance to the building is a beautiful carved granite medallion with the initials SLP and an arm and hammer. To create the atmosphere, I went back and thought like what it was like
2: at the river mill, at shift change, 11 at night, when it was dark, when it was damp, when the wind was coming off the river, when, if the moon was up, It created a sense of mystery, a sense of danger.
3: Hey, welcome to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, a weekly radio show celebrating the cultural heritage of the American worker. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock with Elise Bryant. On today's show, Mark Dimenstein, president of the American Postal Workers Union, shares his favorite labor song. We find out how Vermont's old labor hall is surviving last year's devastating flood. And Sai Khan tells the story behind the song, Back When Times Were Hard. Plus, Carmelita Torres and the Bath Riots, Troubadour, a tribute to Pete Seeger, both by the R.J. Phillips Band and on Labor History in Two, the year was 1865. That was
4: the day the United States Congress passed the 13th Amendment to the Constitution
3: abolishing slavery. That's all coming up on the Labor Heritage Power Hour. Here's the show.
2: Mark Demonstein, president of the American Postal Workers Union. There are a lot of great labor songs, but one of my favorite ones, and it may not be as well known, is Commonwealth of Toil by Ralph Chapman, who also wrote our labor anthem, Solidarity Forever. So when you get a chance, listen to it. I think you'll like it as much as I do.
4: In the gloom of mighty cities, mid the roar of whirling wheels, we are toiling on like chattel slaves of old. And our masters hope to keep us ever thus beneath their heels And to coin our very lifeblood into gold But we have a glowing dream of how fair the world will seem When each man can live a life secure and free When the earth is owned by labor and there's joy and peace for all In the commonwealth of toil that is to be They would keep us cowed and beaten, cringing meekly at their feet. They would stand between each worker and his bread. Shall we yield our lives up to them for the bitter crust we eat? Shall we only hope for heaven when we're dead? But we have a glowing dream of how fair the world will seem when each man can live his life secure and free. When the earth is owned by labor and there's joy and peace for all In the commonwealth of toil is to be They have laid our lives out for us to the utter end of time Shall we stagger on beneath their heavy load? Shall we let them live forever in their gilded halls of crime With our children doomed to toil beneath their gold? But we have a glowing dream of world will see when each man can live his life secure and free when the earth is loaned by labor and there's joy
5: and peace for all in the
2: commonwealth of toil that is
1: to be uh, one of the reasons i love this song it really talks about
2: that the war in the working class exercises our full power we can have a better society and a better world <laughs>
3: And that was Mark Dimenstein, president of the American Postal Workers Union, sharing his favorite labor song, Commonwealth of Toil, written by Ralph Chapman, performed first by Pete Seeger and then finishing up with Sing in Solidarity's live socialist caroling version. Hello,
6: powerful people. This is Seth
3: Harris from the Power at Work
6: blog. We're proud to be a part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. It has more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. That's all one word, laborradionetwork.org.
3: Thanks. Next up, I've known Ruth Rutenberg for many years as the organizer of a labor film series at the Old Socialist Hall in Barrie, Vermont. The state was devastated last summer by floods, and I caught up with Ruth and her colleague, Karen Lane, earlier this week to find out how the hall is doing.
1: My name is Karen Lane. I'm the vice president of the Berry Historical Society, proprietors of the historic Socialist Labor Party
7: Hall, Berry, Vermont. Hi, I'm Ruth Rutenberg, and I'm president of the Berry Historical Society, which operates the old labor hall and now the old labor cooperative store bakery, which has just been refurbished and rehabbed.
3: So I thought uh, before we get into what happened last year and and, uh, what you're doing now, just uh, give folks a little background on the old socialist hall.
1: Sure. The labor hall is um, located in a community that's in central Vermont, uh, about a 15 minute drive from the state capital, Montpelier. Um, It's in a little river valley and um, the Winooski River. And it was built in 1900 by Italian granite workers who um, were politically active. Uh, There was a a variety of different political movements that were very um, vibrant in Barrie that had international connections. So there was coming and going between Italy and uh, various cities in the United States, uh, including Barrie, but also Patterson, New Jersey, um, certainly the Boston area, Lawrence, Massachusetts comes to mind, but there were a lot of uh, places in the country where uh, this kind of political thinking uh, was very important. The Socialist Labor Party uh, actually I believe still exists to some extent, but its heyday was right around 1900 in places like Chicago and in, in this community, in Barrie, Vermont, um, among immigrants. But uh, by 1905, they had pretty much shifted their membership to the IWW, uh, the, the, the old Wobblies, the Industrial Workers of the World. So that was an active chapter for a while. But meanwhile, they really were uh, enthusiastic members of the SLP and right over the main entrance to the building is a beautiful carved granite medallion with the initials SLP and an arm and hammer um, and a leaf of laurel, uh, very beautiful. So that that is the 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 crowning uh, historical artifact of the building, uh, including the building itself. Uh, the building um, really was built as a community center, a place for conversations and discussions, and lectures and uh, panel discussions, um, celebrations. They're everything from weddings and funerals to uh, People's birthday parties and, uh, um, and the place. A couple of really well-known local incidents that happened at the community in the community happened there because it really was the largest uh, gathering place in the community for for events. Um, the chief one that we remember nowadays was in uh, 1912, when 35 children from Lawrence, Massachusetts, came to bury uh, at the invitation of. Uh, The community and the folks in Lawrence who really wanted to support, wanted the support of the folks in Barrie. And there had been a a great deal of fundraising and other kinds of support offered from Barrie to Lawrence. So this was a chance for uh, people. And it was part of what became known as the Children's Crusade, not the Mother Jones one, but another one, where kids left the community for safety uh, during the course of the strike. So these were kids who came to Barrie, stayed with local families. And they were in Barrie for about a month. And then once the strike was settled, uh, they went home. Uh, Most of the families really went out of their way to provide these kids with clothing, sometimes um, toys and equipment. I know a couple of kids got sleds, uh, winter coats, which, believe it or not, they did not have. Even though they were living in Massachusetts in one of the woolen districts of our country. Unbelievable. (laughs) So... So that was a real high point, but there were many other um, issues along those same lines. In the 20s, it was Sacco-Vanzetti. A lot of fundraisers were held at the labor hall to support um, the um, the legal expenses of Sacco and Vanzetti. And when the funeral happened, there was a delegation from Barry, including small children who went with their parents to, um, to the funeral down in the Boston area. So it has a long history of that kind of participation in the national conversation about the labor movement about political movements um, about working class and the folks who really came to work in the granite industry brought so much of that with them they were looking for a new start a place where they could really put some of these ideals into practice and uh it's it's a great heritage that i think we're very proud of
3: ruth could you talk a little bit about what the what the socialist hall is has become in the modern day?
7: So in the 30s the hall was sold to a fruit packing plant and we rebought it. Karen actually was responsible literally in keeping the wrecking ball from hitting the building. I mean it was that close to being destroyed. We've been open now for what Karen, 20 years, 25 okay. years and we try to be consistent with the founders so that um One of our rooms is rented to the United Steelworkers local four, who actually are not the granite carvers, but they're the people who cut the granite out of the ground. We also have um, a room that is rented to the organizing committee of the Vermont American Federation of Teachers, who have had a successful contract, organizing and contract, and now are on a second organizing campaign we also have the quarterly meetings of IATSE, the uh, monthly meetings of the Vermont AFL-CIO, the monthly meetings of the Vermont a- National Education Association. So we are a labor hall, um, truly again. But we also have weekly line dancing, weekly painting classes. We have um, a lot of government agencies that use our building. We have um the participation of lots of family groups for, again, weddings and funerals and birthday parties and and so on. We also have a lot of our own programs. Um, The main one is Primo Maggio, um, the 1st of May, where we have a speaker and a dinner. We have an annual bread and puppet show. We have an annual Event called Soiree Sucre, which is part of the Barrie Heritage Festival. This one um, representing French Canadians. Barrie was a very ethnic city. Besides the Italians, there were French Canadians and Scotsmen and Lebanese and Germans and all kinds of people um, from various ethnic backgrounds. And we've traditionally had a drag ball every year. Um, There is a Pride teach-in that's coming up this year. The Palestinian Liberation Teach-In happened at the hall. Um, Jewish Voices for Peace used the hall. We have a dance party coming up next week to raise money for flood relief because of the terrible floods that the businesses of Barry and Montpelier suffered during during the summer and are still recovering from. AmeriCorps uses our building. It's, it's really been a tremendous asset to the city of Barrie as well as just keeping our heritage. We are a National Historic Landmark and we're working with a labor hall in Copenhagen to see if we can become a World Heritage Site. They're talking about getting nine labor halls from around the world together and being a group. designated as a World Heritage site. We also um, show labor films. We're also planning this year a seminar of about six monthly action-oriented discussions because this is an important year, 2024. So, you know, what can we do to help voting rights? What can we do to help climate action? What can we do to help promote reproductive rights? And so on, so we're an active place and we're proud of who we are.
3: So with all of that setting the stage, something happened last July that kind of changed whatever plans you had. Karen, do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Uh, yes. Well, this <laughs> is not the first time, unfortunately. We've had uh, three or four floods, and uh, this one really devastated downtown Berry, particularly the area where the labor hall is located, known as the North End, uh, which was essentially an immigrant community. Um, the uh, the toll this year, as Ruth was saying, was just amazing. We had seven foot of water in the basement. It was right up to the joists of the floor above. So it completely soaked the basement of the building. Luckily that it didn't affect the upstairs, which was wonderful. That's where all, all the restoration has gone gone on. Um, we had a few advantages. We had already done some measures from as a result of previous funds Uh, floods that helped us minimize I think to some extent what happened we had moved the electrical panels upstairs the elevator machine room was upstairs the uh, boiler was on the main floor so those things were not inundated by the flood but there was still a lot downstairs that was damaged very badly so we're in the process of trying to restore everything a little bit further we're back in action people are using the building and that's really gratifying, but uh, we still have a long way to go to get back to where we would like to be. But we are not the only building, the whole community was affected and there are meetings going on now, trying to figure out what what is the science of this kind of flooding and how does it affect communities like ours? Because we are really just steps away from the river. Um, and that's true of a lot of structures in Barrie. So, a lot of communities that were affected, especially ours, I think Barry was the hardest hit, uh, trying to figure out how to prevent that from being so devastating in the future.
3: I, I guess what I'm wondering is how are you thinking about the effects of these sorts of things, whether it's flood or fire on working people? Ruth, maybe you want to take that and then we can go back to Karen.
7: Well, the neighborhood around Barry has been devastated and there are still hundreds of households that are homeless because their buildings and their homes were so destroyed that they couldn't really go back. And this has happened all around. It's also happened to the business people around Barrie and the business people around Montpelier who are mostly small businesses. So their workers are out of work or were for many months. Some of the stores in Montpelier and Barrie are not coming back, but there has been a tremendous community Support people up and down the the state have been mucking people's basements, have been helping them haul trash. We had what, Karen? Seven work parties. We did. That's right. And and we had probably you know a hundred people hours or or more that um, that went into people who literally were washing the silt off of things to see if they could be salvaged. Um, but we lost everything that was in the basement, basically, except for two statues that stand there. So we'll never put anything back in the basement.
3: This is something that is is very true of Americans. When I've been in Vermont and New Hampshire, I've particularly seen it, which is this real strong independence, right? People really value their independence. And yet you also see places like the socialist hall where people really come together. And so it seems to me that these are not really conflicting or different ideas that it's actually both that you can be independent and codependent. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about those sort of two strains, the the real strong independence and I'll do it myself and the real interconnectedness.
1: That's an excellent point. And I think the, uh, the tradition that we might look to is when the old days, when people's barns burned down, the community would get together and rebuild. And uh, that's exactly what people have remarked about the results of this flood, being a real coming together of the community. Volunteers, like Ruth was saying, hundreds of people giving hundreds of hours of their volunteer labor to rebuild and clean and uh, just try to put things back in order. Um, And I think it's because of that combination of can do, I can do this, I'm independent, I can do do these things, but also we have a, a need to get together as a community.
7: Yeah, our work parties weren't just people in the community. The leaders of the state federation, AFL-CIO were, were there. We had representatives from the state house who came and mucked and mucked the basement. Um, it was really um, a very diverse group of um of, of active
1: people.
3: So you're back in business. What are your What are your plans? If people are, are coming up that way, what what sort of things should they be looking for this year?
1: At the moment, we don't have uh, regular hours, but we okay. do welcome people to get in touch with us. Go to our website oldlaborhall.org, and uh, just let us know you're coming, and uh, we'll we'll try to make every effort to be there and meet you. It is a you know quick visit. We don't have um, you know a museum per se because it is a meeting house. But um, but it's certainly worth a visit, and as we like to say, when you walk in the door, you do get a feeling of the past and its history all around you, and uh, we value that very highly. So we welcome visitors.
7: Yeah, and we we didn't talk about the history of Eugene Victor Debs and Big Bill Hayward and Emma Goldman. I mean, all of those people who came through Barry, and. I feel they're ghosts in the hall. Bernie Sanders is happy to come many times because of the Debs relationship and what that means to to him. Um, if people are coming up, we have rehabilitated the old bakery of the Union Cooperative store. It's called Rise Up Bakery. We have an amazing wood-fired bakery with all kinds of breads the baker has spent 30 years in ukraine and so a lot of good rich european breads we have primo maggio on may 1st always we have bread and puppet it's in the spring this year we have in july something called soiree sucre which is this french canadian music and dessert kind of festival at the hall and we're going to do these monthly conversations trying to activate already active, but a lot of us don't know what to do. And so we're going to get some experts in to kind of help guide us and discuss with us how we can make 2024 a better year instead of a worse year.
3: I love it. The bakery, you're literally doing bread and roses, guys. You know? That's right. That's, that's a right. genius. i tell you what, I'm a lot less worried about 2024 because if there's a socialist labor hall that's got a bakery, I think we're in pretty good shape.
1: <laughs> we'll look forward to your visit, Chris. Well, I've been agitating now for 50 years or more for jobs
5: for equality and always against war. I'll keep on agitating as far as I can see. And if that's what being read is, well, that's good enough for me. Because you ain't done nothing if you ain't been called red. If you're harsh or agitated.
0: Hey, this is Carmen Rodriguez from El Cafecito del Día. At LACLA, we are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, with more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org.
3: Ruth Rutenberg and Karen Lane from the old Labor Hall in Barrie, Vermont. Find out more at oldlaborhall.org. The song, by the way, is Ain't Done Nothing If You Ain't Been Called a Red, written by Elliot Kennan and popularized by Faith Petrick, performed here by Spudbugs from the compilation album Brewing Solidarity, curated by Audrey Plath, and released by Put Out Your Own Records. All proceeds from the album go to Unionizing Starbucks Workers at SBWorkersUnited.org. You're listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. In a moment, Sai Khan will tell us the story behind the song, Back When Times Were Hard. But first, we've got a song from the R.J. Phillips Band. On January 28, 1917... 17-year-old Carmelita Torres, who crossed the border daily from Juarez to clean houses in El Paso, refused to take a toxic disinfectant bath. By noon, Carmelita was joined by several thousand demonstrators at the border bridge. The protest became known as the Bath Riots. Mexican border crossers were not considered illegal in the U.S. until 1917, when a new law imposed formidable barriers to entry a literacy test, a head tax, and a prohibition against contract labor. Mexican nationals, for the first time, needed a passport to enter the United States. All immigrants from the interior of Mexico and those who the U.S. customs officials deemed second-class citizens of Juarez were required to strip completely, turn in their clothes to be sterilized in a steam dryer, and fumigated with hydrocyanic acid and stand naked before a customs inspector who would check his or her quote-unquote hairy parts, scalp, armpits, chest, genital area, for lice. Those found to have lice would be required to shave their heads and body hair with clippers and bathe with kerosene and vinegar. Beyond the indignity of the process, there was a real danger of being burned in a fire. That happened in 1916 in the El Paso City Jail when someone struck a match near a tub during the mayor's disinfection campaign and 27 prisoners burned to death. In 1917, there were 31 typhus cases in the U.S. and only three typhus-related fatalities in El Paso. Yet the DeLossings went on for decades along the U.S.-Mexican border. Even up to the late 50s, during the guest worker Bracero program, Mexican laborers were still being sprayed with DDT before being allowed into the United States. Here's the R.J. Phillips band.
6: That morning was no different from the rest. Said your prayers, drank your coffee and got dressed You did not plan to be a page in history No, Carmelita Headed for El Paso, another house to clean the agents they detained you a girl of 17 no respect did they show you came from mexico Try to disinfect you Take your clothes away others soon joined in some called it a riot and wondered who would win they blamed you in the press the señorita from Juarez they try to disinfect you take your clothes
3: Here's singer-songwriter and former union organizer, Sai Khan.
2: So back when times were hard, which is both the name of a song and what things were like for unions in North Carolina back in the 1970s and 1980s, in some ways they're actually even harder now. But I was working first for the United Mine Workers of America on the Brookside Strike in eastern Kentucky, Harlan County, bloody Harlan. Kentucky, and that set of mines was owned by the Duke Power Company, our quote, friendly neighborhood power company. They provide power to me to this day. So that's what brought me to North Carolina for the first time in 1972 to open a second front against Duke Power in addition to the picket lines in Hardin County, Kentucky. And one of the key allies was of course the North Carolina AFL-CIO, the UMWA, the United Mine Workers of America, being a longtime AFL-CIO union. Uh, the officers at that time were Christopher Scott, known as Chris Scott, who was the president, who was extraordinarily progressive and very, very effective. The vice president was James Andrews, the first African-American in the history of the U.S. labor movement to be elected to a statewide office. So I was elected as the official poet laureate of the North Carolina AFL-CIO. I have no idea whether other state feds have poet laureates or not, but I was very, very proud of the honor. It was an honor by my peers. This probably... After Brookside, it's probably after the J.P. Stevens campaign, where I started working for the Textile Workers Union of America, which is a, and, a, and then later they merged with the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, both very York unions with socialist roots and a real working class conscience. And I think this must have been in the early 80s after both of those campaigns were done. But I took my job description very seriously. And my job description was when there is a need for a song, we will call our poet laureate and our poet laureate will create that song for us. So so here I am with a new job. Needless to say, it doesn't pay, but it's a really, really cool job to have. So one day either Chris or James, I don't know, I worked so closely with these good guys, so they're sort of mind-melded a little bit, called up, hey, you know, what we're gonna do for this conference, we've got this great idea. They're all these older, they were in fact in those years guys, they uh, pretty, male, pretty much a male organizing workforce, which, you know, hopefully is changing, certainly is changing, and uh, of course not a whole lot of textile mills to organize anymore. So they said, what we're gonna do is we, these guys rarely get honored. They rarely get honored and they don't get recognized. Some of them are still working, a lot of them are retired out. We wanna bring all of them back and we want them to talk about what it was like trying to organize in the South, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, during the Red Scare, during Operation Dixie, which was organized by the CIO, in an attempt to organize the south high and, and longs was broken up by by the clan by the by the corporations Name that they came up for them was, was the lions of labor the lions of labor they weren't really lions but they were um fine organizers and committed guys they they were from an old school i think virtually every one of them had come up through the ranks in a mill in a mine these were hardcore working class folks that had come up the hard way and had learned about the union by going through an organizing drive themselves. It was their wages, their working conditions, their safety conditions that they were fighting for. And that's what I tried to put into the song. I think writing praise songs is very dangerous. You don't want to come at it directly. You know, this is not like the mini biography is not the Wikipedia entry. And so you have to create an atmosphere before you honor these folks. And I thought it was really important to bring back that sense of what it was like back in the South, in the supposed good old days. These guys, had be, some of them had been beaten up, some of them had been tarred and feathered. Ought have been ridden out of town on a rail. And I wanted to create that atmosphere. And I also brought into it my own sense of what it was always like when I was working on the J.P. Stevens campaign. Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, at that time in the early 70s, late to later 70s, that was the second largest mill town, certainly in the Carolinas, quite conceivably in the country. Canapolis was the largest one sometime I will sing you the song that apparently some of Ralph Nader's employees wrote for a campaign for a film they did about the organizing campaign in Canapolis, but not today. So to create the atmosphere, I went back and thought like what it was like at the river mill at shift change 11 at night when it was dark, when it was damp when the wind was coming off the river, when if the moon was up, it created a sense of mystery, a sense of danger. And even without the moon, the arc lights that shone down on the parking lot on the entrance to the mill, it was spooky. It was, was, you definitely felt the chill in the air. You felt a chill in your spirit and your soul. The song begins, the wind is off the river.
8: Moon is up tonight. Factory windows
2: shine against the rain. So so I'm coming at a song of praise, but I'm coming at it sideways at an angle, right? Uh, and hopefully somebody hears, you know, the moon is off the river. And then the wind is off the river. The moon is up tonight. Factory windows shine against the rain. It's setting a scene, and it's a scene of, of lonesomeness with edge to it. And then it says, A stranger. From another town. That's the organizer.
8: A stranger from another town stands just outside the gate waiting for the midnight shift to change.
2: Okay, I changed the shift time because a midnight shift is more evocative than an 11 p.m. shift. Plus, it's hard to get 11 p.m. into a song and make it scan. Of course, a lot of these the unions in the South and everywhere else were built primarily by the workers. They were the ones who took the chances. They are the ones who ran the risks. Those those are the ones who lost their jobs, lost their company houses. But often it took an organizer coming to town to help them do something with which they were less experienced. They provided the courage, they provided the know-how. They knew what the work was like. There was this amazing untold story about a strike of cotton workers in the South. There was the largest strike in the history of the United States, the largest single industry strike. We're not talking about 1919 in Seattle and the general strikes. It was the largest single industry strike in the history of the United States up to that time. I think we talked about it in a previous interview, but there were flying squads. Workers would go out on strike. They would get into a farm truck. They're leaning on the sideboards and they would drive to the next mill and circle and shout, come out on strike, come out on strike. And so I learned the history. I learned some of the culture. And I tried to put all, all that into the song, They Stood for the Union, back when times were hard. So there's sort of the invocation, the, the moon, the wind, the river, the lights. And then I talk about the hard times that these organizers went through. I said, you know, some of them were beaten. Some some got thrown in jail. Some of them were ridden out of town, right? And here I am on the stage, it's the North Carolina State Federation of Labor, an affiliate of the the National AFL-CIO, the American Federation of labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, and these old guys are listening to me talk about their lives, their work, and then I say, yes, it was hard, but there was success. And in the song it says, but the unions that they organized are here with us today. I'm talking to 400 union members in a conference room, or Constance Hall, in a Raleigh, North Carolina hotel. The unions that they organized are here with us today, proud and strong. They'll never keep us down.
8: Some of them were beaten. Some got thrown in jail. Some of them were ridden out of town. But the unions that they organized are here with us today. Proud and strong They'll never keep us down We rarely stop to honor The ones who showed the way And we forget their stories Much too soon But the spirit that they gave us Stands guard outside the gates Cradled in the shadow of the moon
2: And this is where my heart is in terms of my long career as a union organizer, as a civil rights organizer, as a community organizer, as a proud member of Local 1000 of the AFM, the American Federation of Musicians, AFL-CIO. This is where my heart is, Chris. This is where I live, proud and strong. They'll never keep us down. You know, a song has to be a song. We're very, if we, if it were a proclamation, it would be on behalf of the North Carolina AFLCO and here assembled in Raleigh at our annual convention, we pause to honor the lions of labor, those organizers and leaders who during hard times had the courage and the commitment to stand up, who never gave up. And because of them, we are here today, united and strong. That's the resolution. It doesn't work in a song. You have to have some. So you have to have some beauty. You have to have some mystery. So I end the song by circling back to the very first verses. Remember, the wind is off the river. The moon is up tonight. Factory windows shine against the rain, right? A stranger from another town stands just outside the gates waiting for the midnight shift to change. Some just walk by quickly, Afraid the boss will see them, just turn their faces to the ground. But they whisper in the corners; they say it with their eyes. Praise the Lord, the unions of the to town. So at the end, it circles back and it says, "We rarely stop to honor the ones who showed the way, and we forget their stories much too soon." But the vision that they gave us stands guard about, stands guard outside the gates, cradled by the shadow of the moon. And so we're back at the beginning. We've come full circle. And we've honored people who really were heroic. I am always, always overwhelmed by the raw courage of everyday people, but they're willing to take risks for themselves and for their friends and for their families, but just how much they risk. So I am always conscious, or I was always conscious in those days when I went into a town as a union organizer and as a community organizer, that I come there with a huge level of privilege. You know, I got, as I said, I come from middle class family. I've never been a mill worker. I've never been a coal miner. Um. Members of my family were working class and worked hard at at many difficult jobs. I didn't And so I can always go home again. And I think that kind of consciousness, that kind of humility, if you will, is something that we as organizers, whether we're union organizers, civil rights organizers, LGBTQ organizers, feminist organizers, you name it. But if we intervene in people's lives, we don't always make them better. And we need to let people know the risks that they are taking, not that they don't already know them. They need to understand that we understand that. And so I think it was a great act on the part of James Andrews, secretary and treasurer of the North Carolina AFL-CIO, the state fed, the state federation, and on the part of Christopher Scott, Chris Scott, the president of the North Carolina AFL-CIO, I think it was a great act on their part to bring back the organizers from the old days which necessarily the good days and to say, we haven't forgotten you. We have not forgotten the commitment that you had. We haven't forgotten the victories you helped working people win. Organizers don't help don't win victories. We help everyday people work together to win victories. It's their victories, not ours. And to say, hey, you know what? You guys are great. We're inspired by you. We remember you, you are not forgotten. You will not be forgotten. And we remember that you stood for the union back when times were hard.
8: The wind moon is up tonight, factory windows shine against the rain. A stranger from another town stands just outside the gate, waiting for the midnight shift to change. Some just walk by quickly, afraid the boss will see. Some just turn their faces to the ground But they whisper in the corners They say it with their eyes Praise the Lord, the Union's come to town They stood for the Union They stood for the Union They stood for the Back when times were hard, they stood for the union, they stood for the union, they stood for the union, back when times were hard. Who will spread the message? outside the gates at midnight in a hundred company towns they talked about the truth that makes us free the power of the union the strength that's in us all the vision of a day that still to We rarely stop to honor The ones who showed the way And we forget their stories Much too soon But the spirit that they gave us Stands guard outside the gates Cradled in the shadow of the moon They stood they stood for the union, they stood for the union. Back when times were hard, they stood for the union. They stood
3: That is going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Heritage Power Hour. If you've got suggestions for guests or topics or music for future shows, drop us a note, info at laborheritage.org. Our music today included at the top and playing now Troubadour, a tribute by the R.J. Phillips band to the late, great Pete Seeger, who died 10 years ago on January 28, 2014. Then we heard Commonwealth of Toil performed first by Pete Seeger and then finishing up with Sing in Solidarity's live socialist caroling version. After that was Ain't Done Nothing If You Ain't Been Called a Red performed here by Spud Bugs from the compilation album Brewing Solidarity curated by Audrey Plath, released by Put Out Your Own Records. All proceeds from the album go to the unionizing Starbucks workers at sbworkersunited.org. Next was Carmelita from the R.J. Phillips Band. And finally, Back When Times Were Hard by Sai Khan. We've got links to all these songs, by the way, in the podcast version of the show. Just search for Labor Heritage Power Hour wherever you listen to podcasts. The Labor Heritage Power Hour is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. Today's show is produced by me, Chris Garlock, engineered by Mike Nacella and Kalia Chapman right here on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. By the way, we're always looking for volunteer producers for the show. If you'd like to contribute a segment about labor arts and culture, or if you'd like to interview a guest for one of our upcoming shows, we can make that happen. Just drop me a line at info, that's I-N-F-O, at laborheritage.org. Thanks so much for listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, the art and soul of the American labor movement we'll see you next week
6: no question of what you stood for we heard you laugh last-
7: for listening to the Just Completed program. If you'd like to offer feedback on any of our programming, please email us at info at wpfw.org. For
0: WPFW News in Washington, and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Today is Thursday, February 1st. Here are some headlines. The House passed the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act of 2024 on a 357 to 70 vote yesterday. The $78 billion package includes an enhanced child tax credit for low-income families and the extension of some tax benefits for businesses that were enacted in 2017. Additionally, the legislation contains funding for people affected by natural and man-made disasters and would enhance the low-income housing tax credit in an effort to increase the supply of low-income housing. The bill now heads to the Senate, where it faces a tougher battle. Key senators said they won't support it in its current form. In other news, the chief executives of the biggest social media companies faced tough questions at a U.S. Senate hearing yesterday about their company's efforts to combat online sexual exploitation. The tech CEOs were repeatedly criticized for not doing enough on their own and for lobbying against federal legislation that would protect kids online. As Senator Lindsey Graham stated, quote, the bottom line, I've come to conclude, is that you aren't going to support any of this, close quote. In closing statements, Senate Chair Dick Durbin called for meaningful bipartisan legislation to address childhood sexual exploitation online, Durbin specifically called for legislation to target a law exempting social media firms from legal liability for content and activity on their platforms. In state news, a district court judge in San Diego yesterday ruled that the state of California can no longer enforce a law that requires citizens from undergoing a background check whenever they buy ammunition because it violates the Second Amendment. Judge Robert T. Benitez also found state laws prohibiting California buyers from purchasing and importing ammunition from out-of-state sellers likewise violate federal law. In response, State Attorney General Bonta said that, quote, Benitez's ruling puts public safety at risk. These laws were put in place as a safeguard and a way of protecting the people of California, and they work. We will move quickly to correct this dangerous mistake. Background checks save lives." And in more state news, Utah's Republican Governor Spencer Cox signed a bill into law Tuesday that makes the state the latest to prohibit diversity training, hiring, and inclusion programs at universities and in-state government. The new law also bars universities and government from requiring employees to submit diversity commitment statements. The measure had already cleared the state House and Senate by wide party-line majorities. The GOP-led states of Florida and Texas enacted similar laws last year restricting diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in higher education. Since then, several other states have followed suit. Meanwhile, according to an Associated Press analysis,